Hello, Andrew here. Just a little note to let you know that the following episode names and briefly discusses the lives of First Nations Indigenous Australians who have died. If you still wish to hear this episode, but to avoid that part, you can skip from the six minute mark until the seven minutes 44 seconds mark. Alternatively, if your podcast player uses the chapters features, you can use this feature to skip where available. Right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Family Histories podcast, the show for and about those of us sat quietly in libraries, archives and spare rooms all around the world, tirelessly piecing together our collective social and family history. My name is Andrew Martin, I'm a family historian, and I'll be your host. In this episode, the priest will be hearing about my guest's globe-trotting, fundraising holy relative, and will be trying to find clues about a Scottish man who goes missing in 19th century Australia. So, put down that old family Bible, grab a cuppa, and let's meet our guest. My guest today is an Australian family historian who is a former librarian, teacher and IT specialist. She is now the president of the Lake Macquarie Family History Group. She's on the committee of the Society of Australian Genealogists. She's a Roots Tech ambassador and somehow she also finds the time to be an avid blogger. So let's log out of my introduction and upgrade our brain cells as I welcome my guest, Jill Ball. Hello, Jill. Welcome to the Family Histories podcast. Oh, good day, Andrew. It's delightful to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. It's a delight to have you on the show as well and to finally have an Australian on the show. Oh, am I the maiden voyage, so to speak? Yes, you are. You are today Team Australia. Oh, woo. <laughs> Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. <laughs> there are some very loyal listeners to this podcast who are based in and around Melbourne, Sydney, Perth and Brisbane. So uh, hopefully they will also enjoy this, but I'm very grateful that they tune in to the rest of the episodes. Good day, everyone. As is uh, always helpful, let's start at the beginning, which is to find out how on earth you got interested in family history. Well, it goes back to the 1980s and there were a couple of events, one personal and one national. Uh, it was the bicentenary of the European arrival in Australia um, and the European settlement in Sydney in 1888 and about that time my grandmother died. And these two events made me think, uh, firstly, I didn't listen. Mm -hmm. And what's my story? Where do I come from? How do I fit into this Australian landscape? And how did I get here? And so that was basically what started me off. Yeah. And then, of course, I was working, I was busy, so I dabbled. And then once I retired in 2008, well, boy, I hit it with gusto and I haven't stopped. <laughs> So, so when you started your research, did you have much to, to go on? Were there many uh, uh, things that you had in the family that you could start researching from, like documents and photos and that kind of thing? No. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still had a few elderly relatives, which was handy. Right. Okay. Yeah. But basically, I had to 
fine. There were no letters uh, because, look, lots of them were illiterate, so they couldn't write. Um, I think my grandmother may have gone to school till she was about 10, yeah, okay. something like that. So, you know, I didn't come from a background of literate people. Uh, so I just got the certificates and uh, just started working backwards okay. as, as one does. So what kind of uh, sites and tools did you, did you use to, to do your research? Well, back in the old days, we had to use a lot of shoe leather, really. We had yep. to write letters. <laughs> <laughs> Snail mail. Uh, I remember those days, yeah. Yeah, the uh, State Library in Sydney was uh, very handy at that time, so I could toddle into the State Library. The State Archives at that stage also had rooms in the centre of Sydney. They've now moved way out to what we call Whoop Whoop. Um, so it's quite a journey to get there. But uh, it was very easy to go into the state archives and, and look at those records. Uh, so basically that's what it was. It was uh, look for certificate, get certificates, go to the archives, go to the library, read books. Wow. <laughs> I remember those. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that. And then, of course, as, as time went on, the internet appeared. I think I was a re- relatively... Um, early uptaker of the internet. I suppose I was using it in the early 1990s and I was then able to reach out with people via the internet rather than writing letters. And uh, then it's developed from there as more and more things have gone online, but I still believe you can't do it all from home, can you? No, certainly can't. You've got to actually get out there and I think the story I will be sharing with you about one of my uh, relatives is a good indication of where you have to go and how far you have to go to fill in that um, your family stories. So where are your ancestors from? Do you, do you descend at all from, say, First Nations people or Indigenous Australians? Or I certainly do. Yeah. Uh, or And do you have perhaps some ancestors who... Uh, came out to Australia on the promise of a new life or maybe on the punishment of an old life? Oh, I've got everything. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, we'll start with my first ancestor to be here. Okay. Her name was Biddy Sargent. I know very little about her. She was an Indigenous woman and uh, who hooked up with one of my ten convict direct ancestors um, and they produced a an ancestor of mine, Biddy and Robert Haywood. There is very little documentary evidence to prove that um, Biddy is my ancestor. But I have found over 100 DNA contacts whose Mm -hmm. paper trail leads back to Biddy. Now, I know people say, oh, you shouldn't take any notice of the ethnicity um, reports on on ancestry, but that's all we have got. So I've got – I'm only 2% uh, Indigenous, but my my first cousin's Mm -hmm. 6%, and then I've got connections that are up to 20% uh, Indigenous. So I take it that Biddy is my ancestor. But apart from that – I've got the 10 convicts uh, from mostly from England, but a couple from Ireland and uh, one from Scotland. Okay. Uh, so they got a free passage. Okay. Um, then I've got 
a couple of Irish famine orphans who came out under a scheme in the late 1840s, early 1850s. Then I've got a few more Irish who came of their own volition. (laughs) They weren't sent. They chose chose to come to Australia. Uh, So that's sort of the full bottle. So I'm basically English, mostly Irish and Scottish and with a little dribble of uh, Indigenous. What's the attitude towards having convict ancestors in Australia? Oh, has it changed? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I found nothing from my mother. Um, I'm sh- I, and my grand, nor my grandmother. So I'm wondering if they knew. My grandmother must have known, but mm-hmm. it wasn't spoken about. When I started doing family history, my mother was quite upset. She didn't really want to know about it. And then, of course, when I found the convicts, well, that was dreadful. And she said, oh, can't you find one on your father's side? <laughs> <laughs> Which I did, and so that uh, that made Mum feel a bit better. But Dad only had two convicts, and Mum had eight. Oh, so but now, of course, um, it's it's a bit of fun. People who have convict ancestors call themselves or say they are members of Australian royalty. It's a badge of honour. Okay. And we've got to be aware of presentism. These people that came out of convicts, they were desperate. They wanted to live. And so to live, they had to do things that we in today would look down on. But if we were in their situation, what would we do? Would we steal that sheep? Just the sheer poverty here, certainly in England, um, that would lead you to do something like that. And then suddenly you were carted off to the other side of the world uh, for just trying to feed your family or, you know, just to, just to survive, really. Um, so whilst whilst I might find a relative in the records that uh, stole a sheep or stole a chicken and got uh, went through the courts and got sent off to Australia and it's kind of a bit embarrassing, it's like, oh no, oh dear, it's interesting to hear your point of view um, from having uh, those convict ancestors. And I, I've got a quote. There, there was a famous um, social reformer called Caroline Chisholm. She was an English person who came out to, to Australia and she actually interviewed one of my convict ancestors, who, an Irishman named Patrick Curry. And so I've read his words from 1846 and he said something like, I... I have a good life I want for nothing. And so he came to Australia, he made good, he became a farmer and the majority of the convicts, I think, had that sort of experience. They were able to put food on the table. That's good. Back in back in series one of the podcast, we had a guest called Jane Huff, and she talks about her ancestor who was uh, sent to Australia for stealing pieces of linen. She was kind of cutting them off of larger pieces and then selling them, and she got caught. And she was taken away from her husband and children and sent to Australia. Um, and she stayed there. She started a, a new life. I think she married again. And, you know, she made a new life out there. Do you think that's something that was quite common? Yes. And another thing that was common, and as was the case with Patrick Curry and his wife in Ireland, that she went on to commit a a minor crime a few months after he was sentenced and she came out and joined him and uh, 
they actually married again in Australia because they didn't have evidence of their marriage in Ireland. So I think a lot of them, um, the partners did go on to uh, commit something to get out here. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, then there are other instances in my family where they just married someone else and started afresh. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so you have a skills from your career as a librarian, teacher, and IT specialist. Have any of those been useful in your genealogy work? Yes. <laughs> well, I feel that they have. I, I feel okay. it's given me a good background, especially with uh, the information skills process, how to go about researching. But Anyone can learn this. What does amaze me as I come across people in the genealogy world is the other number of retired librarians and teachers who take this up as a hobby when they retire. <laughs> I keep seeing names pop up <laughs> and think, oh, I knew you in a former life. <laughs> so it's, it's a popular pastime. Do you think it's just their forever love of, our, of quiet places where people read? Oh, I don't like quiet places. No? Um, I think it's their forever love of reading and research, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, You're quite a blogger. How did you first find your kind of voice or the momentum to to do that? Oh, well, once again, it comes to retirement. I had been taken up blogging early on in the early 2000s or whatever, and I retired in 2008. And I thought, oh, I really enjoy blogging. Let's find a niche. And my niche was family history. So I, it, it's a bit eclectic, my blog. I tend to blog about anything and everything. It's not just family stories. It's, um, you know, opinions, news, whatever floats my boat on a particular day. What do you think has been the biggest kind of technology change to impact genealogy? Well, I suppose it's, it's got to be information technology, hasn't it? Definitely. And and um, is DNA technology? Certainly now uh, it's, yeah. Well, if you class that as technology, I suppose it's science, isn't it? Um, I think DNA is just amazing. It's, uh, I was not a believer. It took me a little while. Um, but when those results started coming in and they confirmed my tree, I thought, yep, I'm on board with this. And uh, so, of course, I've tested with every company or all the majors, five I think there are, and uploaded to GEDmatch. And, uh, you know, I manage kits for all sorts of people and carry a usually a DNA kit in my handbag when I'm off to a family event, <laughs> just in case I can find another victim. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just in I know this feeling, yeah. <laughs> so it's the whole world wide web information technology who who has got a glass, um, oh, what do you call it, a looking glass. I don't know what's going to come, but I'm very excited about it. And I think we've all got to be ready to adapt. We don't shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, um, let's embrace and try out all the new tools that are offered up to us. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, the Lake Macquarie Family History Group. What kind of things do they get up to? We're a very small group, but I'm ever so proud of them. We've only got about 70 members. And we did not miss one meeting because of COVID. Wow. We... uh, 
we started using a free Zoom platform the week that COVID really hit us and we have been Zooming every week since then. We have a DNA group plus we have meetings uh, every few – every month. Yeah. Uh, So – even though we're a very small group, we're on Facebook, we're, we Zoom, we're a family history group of the 21st century. And Lake Macquarie is a beautiful area about um, two hours north of Sydney. Nice. Um, and I'm not actually uh, on the committee of the Society of Australian Genealogists. I'm just on the education committee. <laughs> oh, okay. And we sort of drive the program of education. And once again... <laughs> Uh, the society got into Zoom straight away and has a huge program of educational offerings available via Zoom, including uh, casual Friday afternoon sessions. Uh, I host, no, I'm hosting one next week, uh, where we just chat. And it's wonderful. It's enabled the society to expand their horizons because they are an Australian society. But when they were only having face-to-face events, there was that geographical problem for all the members who were outside Sydney and now everyone can join in which is just wonderful. Do you think that that uh, may come to a point where you somehow blend them or maybe do some in-person or and or some online ones? Definitely that that's what will happen people have just got to get a bit uh, confident I think about setting up hybrid situations. We actually do hybrid meetings now from Little Lake Macquarie (laughs) And, oh, my God, we have had some issues with sound. But, you know, people are understanding. Yeah. And uh, we think we've got our act together now. So, it's I, look, it's the way of the future. But I did my first face-to-face event about a fortnight ago, mm-hmm. and you can't beat it. Being able to eyeball the, the fellow in the front row who's sort of nodding off and, and being able to pick on someone and say, what do you think, Glenda? Or, you can't, can't beat that, you know. You've got your body language, your facial expression, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's totally different. Yeah, It's totally different. It was just a wonderful event. And some of the people that came along, I wondered why they were there. And they weren't there to hear me. They were there to interact with other family historians. And we had a ball. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is family history to you? What does it mean to you? It's changed. Uh, back in 1988, when I started, I was a very selfish family historian. I was doing it for me. Now, I'm doing it for them. And them are my children, my 12 grandchildren, and whoever may come after me. Okay. And I must tell you one thing that I do with blogging. Is this okay? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, I have a personal blog as well as a family history blog. And because, you know, some young people, like my offspring, aren't very interested. I am blogging on this personal blog so that perhaps when I turn up my toes and they say, oh, I wonder what mum was doing here, or I wonder what mum thought about this, they'll be able to go to my personal blog. So I'm leaving that there as a legacy. And even better, and this is about an Australian resource, you've heard of Trove. I have, yes. I love Trove. Trove's the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, Trove have a web archive category and going back whenever they started it off, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know, they were looking for blogs and websites to archive. And so Trove 
archive my genealogy blog, my personal blog and my website with my family tree on it so that when I go, when blogging is no more, Trove will have preserved those things in whatever format that is accessible to people of the time. So how beautiful is that? I have a lot of love for Trove. The, the kinds of things that I've found on there um, have included very, very detailed uh, newspapers on there that, that because the person I'm looking for has uh, emigrated from England to Australia, it details all of their life back home in England in such great rich detail and sometimes includes a photograph as well. And I've scoured the the newspapers that would have been in the in the UK and you know there's nothing but you look at Trove and you can find so much in there it's such a great resource. I think it's a friendlier interface too than some of the uh, British newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> and and so useful because often things like obituaries and that were copied in uh, Australian papers. I found deaths for English um, relatives actually in the Australian Trove newspapers on Trove, which has been, you know, they weren't reported in newspapers over there. So it's been very good. And because and Trove has opened up, that, that's one of, the, one of the things that has happened since I started Family History. It's really enabled us to learn so much about our ancestors, particularly if they lived in a small country town. You know, I can see my, read about my grandfather falling off his bicycle you know, 500 miles from Sydney, about the same grandfather bringing the first uh, motor car to the country town. And uh, it's just wonderful. And another grandfather wandering down the – great-grandfather wandering down the railroad tracks with his horse and a train came along. Well, the train got the horse but great-grandfather escaped. (laughs) Wow, that was lucky. And so that is what Trove does for – family historians in Australia and that's why we love Trove. It's now the part of the show where my guest picks one of their most fascinatingly good, bad or just plain ugly relatives and they tell their life story. So, Jill, who are you going to introduce us to? I'm going to introduce you to Michael Harrington Ryan and I guess I must say he was a good person because he was a man of the cloth. Okay. So he's got no descendants to love him and tell his story. Or no descendants we know about anyway. (laughs) So it was back in 2012 and I called into a family history group to seek some information on my second great-grandmother, Bridget Ryan. And this lovely country uh, group had clipped uh, an obituary and one paragraph in that, that obituary jumped out at me and it said, she was a sister to the late Reverend Father Harrington Ryan, who was one of the pioneer priests of New South Wales mm-hmm. and latterly parish priest of Camden and Leichhardt. I thought, oh, a holy man in the family, you know, we've got, we've got so many larrikins. I've got to find out about this chap. I'd never heard of him. <laughs> uh, so I went digging and it's been a hard dig, um, a fruitful dig, and I have used resources in all sorts of places and all manner of resources and I've even had to spend a bit of money 
to find out about the Reverend. Okay. From what I can gather, he was born in either Kilbegan or Castletown Gagan in Westmeath, one of five children I've found for Thomas Ryan and Ellen Harrington, who were both dead by 1842. Coincidentally, in 1842, his sister Mary Ryan and her husband emigrated to Australia, starting a chain migration. And also in 1842, there was an advertisement in the Dublin Evening Post that was calling for applicants to attend a new college. It was a seminary for foreign missions called All Hallows in Dublin that was set up with the idea of training priests for missionary work. Well, I found out that uh, Michael Harrington Ryan had applied to the college and the requirements for that to um, enter the college tell me a little bit about Michael. He had to have a tolerably good constitution to be not under 17 or 18 years of age. He had to be fully resolved to go to foreign missions and bring most satisfactory documents of recommendation. And he had to be sufficiently advanced in logic to begin education there. Also, he had to pay annually the sum of £10 towards his support and education. Now, I have no idea how where he found the £10. But anyway, Michael entered the college and in 1847, um, Archbishop Polding from Australia visited the college seeking students who were near ordination to come to Australia. Well, he must have, uh, he, he trapped Michael Harrington Ryan, shall we say, maybe because his Michael's sister was in Australia. And so in 1847, Michael Harrington Ryan, who was nearly ready to be ordained, left Liverpool with the Archbishop and a party of nuns and priests that this Archbishop had found in different places. And uh, off they went to Sydney. I found a wonderful article, I had to pay for it, on the SAGE database that described their voyage in minute detail. We haven't got time to go into that, but it was amazing. It was used as an educational um, event. Uh, so it was very serious education was happening for all these nuns, priests, etc., that were on the journey. They arrived in Sydney in early in 1848. Okay. And uh, Michael Harrington Ryan very soon was ordained in the new St. Mary's Cathedral in Sydney. That was in May 1848. And uh, he was there for just a short time before he was set off on his first mission. And he became the only Catholic chaplain on the penal colony of Norfolk Island. It was a pretty dismal place and he was there for about five years by himself. Um, He did go to to help an aged priest, but the aged priest left. Um, What is wonderful is that there is a resource in Australia called the Australian Joint Copying Project that um, in cahoots with uh, repositories in the UK uh, filmed and digitised many, many records And among these records are some records, uh, letters written by Michael Harrington Ryan back to a friend in Ireland and 
to the diocese in Sydney. Okay. Uh, the records of the All Hallows uh, Seminary are all many of them are also digitised and available online free. So it they were great help in finding about Michael's antics in Norfolk Island. So he stayed there for 1853, but during this time, Norfolk Island changed from being part of the Sydney Diocese to being part of the um, diocese in Hobart, Tasmania. So his next um, appointment was to Tasmania, but to get there, he had to travel, he had to sail back to Sydney, he travelled overland uh, with one horse and one small portmanteau. He travelled via Yass, Gundagai, Tumut, and he visited diggings at Adelong Creek. During this time, he baptised many children and heard hundreds of confessions, and he continued on through the goldfields, was allowed to have five days' rest in Melbourne before he was uh, wow. embarked on a steamer to go to Tasmania, and there he served for all till about 1859 in two penal colonies, and then just from Trove, I gathered that then he worked in a parish for for a while because I can find um, marriages that he performed and baptisms that he performed. Um, so then he left Tasmania, and I've got a big hole in the life of uh, Michael Harrington Ryan. He was in Tasmania late in 61. And the next thing I found out about him was in 1864. And where do you think he turned up? He turned up at the parish of Turnham Green okay. in the Diocese of Westminster. Oh, okay. Uh, I have found... a an article that says that he first travelled to Rome and Ireland and then uh, to England, but I can't find any evidence, hard evidence for that. But I can certainly find evidence of him working in Turnham Green and Brentford. Um, Ray, you know, he did things like raising funds for an organ for the church and um, okay. speaking at a public meeting for the Association for the Suppression of Drunkenness. Uh, so... And also working on uh, raising funds to build the church in Brentford. So that's all thanks to the British Newspaper Archive. Nice. I'm coming to the UK hopefully in June, so I want to see if I can find some diocesan records that may help fill in the, the gap. Fingers crossed. Um, okay, so what happened to, to him then? Well, he was came back to Australia. I don't know how he got here. I think a lot of people were good swimmers. And, and he turned up in northern New South Wales in Grafton. And once again, he was raising money to build a new church. He loved raising money. He had, you know, held bazaars and all sorts of things. And he was able to p purchase um, land for a presbytery. So that was him in Grafton. But then, of course, he was removed. And someone in the local press said, I'm very sorry to have to inform you that our worthy and much beloved pastor, the Reverend M.H. Ryan, has been removed from amongst us to take charge of the important mission of Newcastle over which he was recently appointed by His Grace the Archbishop. So once again, Trove has given me so many references to Michael Harrington Ryan and his holding of bazaars, marrying people, um, being on different boards, etc., etc., and calling for tenders uh, for buildings of 
church buildings. So he quite settled into um, Newcastle. Sounds like he's quite integral in his work. Yeah, he, uh, it, so much money raising, um, you know, and then an eloquent sermon on the passion was preached by him, all sorts of things. And then a new Catholic church was opened um, and the sermon was given by him because he raised all the money. So he was quite busy in Newcastle and obviously he was quite happy. He was on the board for the, you know, imbecile asylum and uh, all sorts of things and, you know, he... Um, Welcomed the nuns who the first nuns who came to the area and <laughs> made them feel welcome, etc. And then, of course, he was called by the diocese. He was back with the Sydney diocese by this stage, ah, and he was called to serve in Sydney. And 1879, he was called to St Mary's Cathedral to be the dean of the cathedral. He was dean of the cathedral for five. Years at St Mary. So now, so he, he, because he was, they obviously knew he was good at raising money because St Mary's Cathedral had burnt down previously and they needed to raise money to rebuild the church. And that was one of the reasons that he was called back to St Mary's. He was the guy. But interestingly, while he was at St Mary's, he was also the chaplain at Darlinghurst Jail. So he was witness to um, some of the last hangings that happened at that institution. Okay. He was a trustee of the Rookwood Necropolis. I don't know if you've heard of Rookwood Necropolis. I think it's the second largest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere and it was one of the first big public cemeteries set up in Australia. So he was a trustee there. St Mary's Cathedral had a school attached to it, as do many schools. You know, they have choir schools, etc., etc. So he was the chair of the board for the school at St Mary's. So he was a bit of a busy boy um, in in those years. I've got quite a few marriages that he um, performed, yes, and here's the, he was the uh, vis- uh, present in 1880 at the execution of Scott and Rogan, and I think they were the last people to be hanged. Mm-hmm. I Someone in Australia may... Um, argue with that, but I think that's right. Uh, I've got a Herald article. So, you know, all of this work, sort of poor, poor work, worked um, on his health. So he wasn't a very healthy man by the time 1880 came. So he was sent to be a country priest in Sydney. So he had um, help in his first uh, appointment from his nephew, whose father had emigrated to Australia, from his nephew, and um, okay. then he worked at a couple of other parishes and, until he died. But while this was all happening, he was a little bit of an entrepreneur. He had bought quite a bit of land in, well, some in Cootamundra, and that's where his nephews also bought land, so I don't know whether he bought it because the nephews were only allowed to buy, each person was allowed to buy so much or whatever. Okay. But he bought land at Cootamundra and, and at other places. So when he finally died in 
1887, on the 12th of the 11th, 1887, he was actually a parish priest or an assistant priest at Leichhardt. That's in inner, inner Sydney. Oh, and they had a great, you know, masses all over the place and solemn dirges and all sorts of things to... Um, not celebrate, yeah, celebrate his passing into the next world, I suppose you, you could say. Um, and he was buried in the Catholic um, religious section at Rookwood Cemetery. And when I looked on Find a Grave yesterday, there wasn't an entry for him. So what's one of my jobs today? Oh. <laughs> is to put an entry on Find a yes. Grave for Michael Harrington Ryan. But anyway, he's uh, so he's resting at that Rookwood Necropolis where he was the um, on the board. Uh, his obituary, you know, there are obituaries all over the place, and as years have gone by, there've been articles in various Catholic newspapers and journals about Father Michael Harrington Ryan, just saying what a you know saintly person he was, what an eloquent um, orator he was all that sort of thing. But anyway, Michael Harrington Ryan ended up a man of means. He actually left an estate, and we're going thinking back um, to the 1880s, an estate of £3,422, three shillings and three pence. So I just – he's – just ignited my interest and some of the places I've been if you would like to know to find the dirt go for it well there's no dirt on Michael Harrington Ryan only the dirt covering him at Rookwood I suppose <laughs> um, I have been to Kilbeg and Westmeath looking for Ryan's of course I've taken DNA tests and I thought I'd found a family a match but then we wasn't so. I've been to the Westmeath archives. I've been to the National Library of Australia, and I, not Australia, what do you call it, Ireland. And I did find some microfilmed resources there that um, referred to Michael. Uh, I've been to you know the National Library, all the places in Australia that one would go to. Trove has been just an absolute joy to look and of course I'm looking for M.H. Ryan, I'm looking for Michael Ryan, I'm looking for Reverend Ryan, I'm looking for Michael Harrington Ryan. I am so pleased that he was known as Michael Harrington. That has made things much easier. Harrington was his mother's um, maiden name. But to have it turn up as a middle name, inheriting it from his mother, that's that's a gift. That's wonderful. So, and as I said, i I bought articles from SAGE. The Australian Joint Copying Project has been wonderful. The archives of uh, All Hallows that uh, have digitised letters and things. It just It all comes together, but it just shows you that you've really got to – oh, and, of course, books. There's a history of All Hallows that's digitised and is online. Uh, so you've just got to go so far if you want to really tell someone's story and uh, – one thing I couldn't find was a photo of Michael Harrington Ryan. Oh. I found a photo that had about 50 priests in it and he was this little tiny head. And then I was cataloguing a book for the Lake Macquarie Family History Group and it was a book about one of the churches in Newcastle because mm -hmm. I've been cataloguing all the books of the society and I thought, oh, I'll just look in the index, even though it wasn't about his church. So I looked in the index and there was a reference on page whatever and I turned to it, and guess what? 
there was a photo of Michael Harrington Ryan. Fantastic. It just shows you, doesn't it, that you go to a library, you look at the books and you flip through the indexes, even if the book isn't quite related. Just, you know, browse shelves, pick books up, look at indexes. You just never, never know if you never, never go. Wonderful, I guess, to, to see his face. Did he look how maybe you had imagined him to look? No. <laughs> What, what were you expecting? <laughs> oh, I suppose I expected some sort of Clark Gable type person. <laughs> <laughs> and the reality? <laughs> the reality was he just looked normal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the particularly good photo, but it was a photo. Um, yeah, so he was just a person. He just looked like someone's ancestor. Yeah. But... Uh, Yes, I just I just love this chap, and I, and I want to go further, you know, find more about him, especially those missing years. What was he doing yeah. in Rome, Ireland, and the UK? The Catholic archives in the um, diocese of Sydney are particularly um, welcoming of family historians, so I can't get in there. I need someone who's in the know to help me get into the archives because I'm sure there's quite a bit of information about him there. Or one needs to do a PhD or something like that. <laughs> you have to befriend someone who, who's on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you said there's not a book on Michael Harrington Ryan. No. Does this mean that you are the person to do the book on Michael Harrington Ryan? Uh, I don't think I have a book in me. I'm a bit old. Um, but I should blog more about his story. But at least I've done the research because I'm one of the people who has a codicil in their will um, as to what should happen and what will happen. So hopefully the research, I have got it organised in such a way that someone else can follow it. Well, let's hope that those missing three years of, of Michael's turns up somewhere. And 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 you know, a connection to, to his early life. Because Castletown Gagan is just such a small place. Kilbegan's a little bit um, larger. And we have tramped the cemeteries in both places, Kilbegan and, and uh, Westmeath, to see if we can find um, people. But, you know, how many hours are there in a day and how often can one get to Ireland? Well, thank you, Jill, for sharing Michael Harrington Ryan's life story. But I think it's time for you to face the brick wall. Brick walls can be infuriating for hours, days, weeks, years or even decades. But they can also be a delightful puzzle, something to keep chipping away at. Now's the time for you, dear listeners, to reach for that notepad and pencil as my guest is going to share one of her brick walls in a hope that you can help her solve it. Okay, Jill, what can you tell us about your brick wall? Well, firstly, your listeners will not need a very large notepad. <laughs> Just a tiny scrap of paper will suffice. I'd like to introduce you to my two times great grandfather, James Duncan. I believe that James Duncan was born in or around Aberdeen in Scotland. Okay. I haven't got the date in front of me, but never mind. I've got three documents 
that attest to the existence of James. Okay. The very first document is the marriage entry. Unfortunately, he was married before uh, civil registration. So I've just got the, the marriage entry. And he was married in the Cathedral of St. Michael and whatever it is in Melbourne on the 25th of May in the year 1853. He was married to Mary Clygan, also named Mary Cregan, Mary Cl- – oh, you know, it's one of those with about 15 spillings – an Irish woman from Enniskillen who arrived in Australia in 1839, I believe. Um, so I've got this marriage record. Uh, James actually signed it with his own uh, hand or – Someone signed it for him. Mary signed with a cross, but James signed, I believe, in his own hand. So he was literate. So I know that James existed. The next record I have that mentions James comes after civil registration. And the uh, Victorian birth records, as are New South Wales birth records, are very full. They give lots of information. So in 1857, James was born and there are two children already living. And Mary, she's now C-R-I-E-G-A-N um, is the mother. So I figure that that's, you know, the same James as the father as the bloke that married her. Okay, good. The third piece of evidence I've got is a death certificate for my great-grandfather, Francis Duncan. And Francis Duncan died. Now, James and Mary were in Victoria, close to Melbourne. My great-grandfather died in Cobar in western New South Wales, which is a long, long way from Melbourne. And on my great-grandfather's death record, uh, his parents are named as James Duncan and Mary Gregson, but I believe that is Mary Clygan. So we've got between when James' brother was born and 1921, I don't know what happened to James. I don't know how James got to Australia. James Duncan is a very common name. I don't – I've got a few candidates. Yeah, okay. I've gone through – so many death records. I've gone through so many shipping records. Okay. Um, maybe he didn't come from Aberdeen. I don't know. Right, okay. Um, but he got to Australia. Did he swim? <laughs> and is he still alive? What year did this Francis Duncan die? Uh, 1921. And he was 70 years of age. So there's just those scattered clues, really. They're scattered clues. And I really haven't done much with this. It's just, you know, how you find more interesting people like Michael Harrington Ryan and you sort of give up on on the hard ones. So there we have the Duncans. Now, DNA has, of course, brought me a few fellow descendants, but no one seems to have any further information on... James. And you've tested with most of the DNA companies. Yes. 
Yeah. So so you should get some matches if those relatives existed and there are now descendants. What I find interesting is that there were only three children that I can find. So did James come to an early end? Did Mary die young? I can't I can't kill off James, I can't kill off Mary. They just ceased to exist. Maybe, like some of my other ancestors, they went back to the UK, but I doubt it. Um, so there you have it. I, I said to you it would be a short story. If someone who's listening thinks that they might have a clue for this, what's the best way for them to make contact with you? Well, there are a couple of ways. I'm also known as Jeannie Oz, G-E-N-I-A-U-S. And if you put that into Google, you'll find me. But if you wish to email me, you can email jillballau at gmail.com. So that's J-I-L-L-B-A-L-L-A-U at gmail.com. And you will find me. And of course, we will also uh, have the contact form on the familyhistoriespodcast.com website where you can send a message via us to Jill. We will obviously pass that on and uh, fingers crossed that we can find uh, some clues as to what happens. Um, so with this uh, 1857 date for James, um, I guess, say, if you had access to I don't know, let's say a time machine, you would go back there and you would probably ask him a lot of questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, yeah, just his parents' names are just, oh, dear me. What was it? Because there were a few criminals, you know, I found on Trove. Is he one of those criminals? I don't know. Was he actually a convict? I don't know. He's in the right time frame for a convict, but I can't. The convict records are very good, and I can't find someone that fits the bill. Ah. Well, whilst the listeners go hunting for clues, I reckon I might be able to help you with solving your brick wall. Ooh. But you're going to need to follow me through to my garage. Oh. Here we are. Oh, what a mess. Hey. I'll have you know it's a fully functioning, highly scientific time machine. Really? It looks like it could do with an upgrade. It works just fine, thank you. Look, I've set the 1857 date already. Ah, uh, what about those? What about what? The 42 available updates. Huh? Look, you just need to click here. What are you doing? Don't go changing my screensaver. Ah, uh, it'll be fine. Um, well, uh, while it does that, uh, how about you sit over there? Oh, you'll need this. It's a temporal beacon. Just press the big button when you're ready to come home. Okay, got it. Has it done? Oh, it, it says update complete, press any key. Where's the any key? What? Where's the any key? Oh, just press any key. I know, but where is it? You'll find it. Um, ooh, new icons. Well, Jill Ball, thank you, goodbye, and good luck. Oh, spot on. What? No, I don't want your help to write a letter. The Family Histories podcast was presented and produced by me, Andrew Martin. My guest was the Bonza Jill Ball, and if you've enjoyed this episode, then please click subscribe to get the next one 
or consider leaving us a rating or review. Thank you. Approximately no family historians were harmed in the making of this podcast.